Let's begin by opening to Acts chapter 1, please. Open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. This morning we're continuing in our little series on Sunday mornings on the characteristics of a healthy church, and today we note that a healthy church is a praying church. Prayer is powerful. It enables God's will to be done on earth, even as it's done in heaven. And by the same token, we are powerless to do God's will without prayer. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, Without me you can do nothing. Therefore, praying ought to be the number one personal and congregational priority. And yet who among us would say that we pray as much as we should? As we come to the preaching of God's word this morning, I am reminded and I just want to remind you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's, it's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Even though the fifth book of the New Testament is called the Acts of the Apostles, it really is the Acts of Jesus Christ through his church by the Holy Spirit in answer to the prayers of the church. Luke begins to tell us the story in the Gospel of Luke and then he continued in what we call the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's a reference to the Gospel of Luke that he wrote. Verse 2. Until the day that he was taken up, taken up after that he, through the Holy, Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. When the Lord was on earth, he began to do and to teach. And then he left the earth, was taken up into heaven, and he continued from heaven to do and to teach through his body, the church. And the incredible thing is that the first Christians who made up the first church were able to accomplish so much with so little. They didn't have fancy buildings. They met in public areas in people's houses. They didn't have large budgets. Peter says, silver and gold have I none. They didn't have trained leadership. They were ignorant and unlearned men. They didn't have political power or friends in high places. In fact, they were the enemies of the government of the day. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were persecuted. They were hounded from place to place. And yet, consider what they accomplished. They turned the world upside down. What was their secret? The word of God, the spirit of God, and prayer. They shared the word of God, they depended upon the spirit of God, and they prayed before the throne of God. The early church knew how to pray. And when they prayed, something happened. God's will was done. The book of Acts contains at least 30 references to prayer in many different settings. And if we just take the broad overview, what we see is that the local church rises or falls 
with its praying. If you ask the average Christian, they say, no, no, the church rises on its preaching. Preaching is important. But praying was behind the apostles' preaching in the book of Acts. You'll find that Peter and John were men of prayer. Paul, the apostle, was a man of prayer. The early church believed in prayer and the local church and its ministry rises or falls on its prayer life. Therefore, the church must pray. Something happened in the book of Acts when the early church prayed. And something happens today when local churches meet to pray. Therefore, churches must pray. When we pray, we take hold of the throne of God. When we pray, God can give us boldness. God can give us love. God can give us power. God can give us grace. When we pray, God can expand the witness of the church. Something happens when a church prays. When a church prays, God works. Are you part of the church's prayer ministry? Today, there is an alarming trend to abandon church prayer meetings. It's a product of the Laodicean spirit. It says we don't need anything. We've got everything that we need. We're self-sufficient. Churches are depending upon so many other resources and neglecting the paramount resource that God has given to us. The marvelous resource of prayer. If you look down, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, notice that the first gathering of Christians described in the book of Acts is a prayer meeting. Verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James. That's the 11 remaining apostles. Verse 14. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. There were 120 people in that upper room. This was the nucleus of what was to become the church. And perhaps they weren't the only believers in Jerusalem, but they were certainly the most important believers in Jerusalem because they were doing the most important thing that anyone can do. That is, they'd join together to pray. And they're involved in the fellowship of prayer. And this became the pattern. If you go to chapter 2, verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued in fellowship together. They continued praying together. The word fellowship there means to have in common. It's used frequently in the New Testament. As Christians, we have a great deal in common. We're cleansed by the same blood of Christ. We belong to the same family. We 
share the same father. We're indwelt by the same spirit. We belong to the same spiritual body. We have the same blessed hope waiting for the return of Christ. We pray to the same Lord. Many Christians use the word fellowship to describe sitting across a table from each other, drinking coffee, eating cake. We can have fellowship in that way, but it may not be very deep. But the deepest kind of fellowship that we can have together as Christians is as we come together and pray together in the fellowship of prayer. It's very interesting to note the variety of people that were involved in this, pre in this prayer meeting. To begin with, both men and women were there. Chapter 1, these women mentioned in verse 14 were those, according to Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, were those who had ministered unto the Lord Jesus. Jesus led these women to glorious experience of salvation. They became his followers and they together joined the men in this prayer meeting, sharing in this fellowship of prayer. Notice that the apostles were there, 11 of them named. Notice also that the brothers of the Lord Jesus were also there. Verse 14 says, And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Jesus' brothers are mentioned in Matthew 13, 55, and Mark 6, verse 3. Their names are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. These brothers originally did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us, neither did his brethren believe in him. However, after the resurrection, they became believers. And James became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And Judas, or Jude, is the author of the book that bears his name. But the point to note is this. The apostles had been walking with the Lord for three and a half years. Jesus' brothers had been saved for just a short space of time, probably just about a month. And yet both groups meet together in this prayer meeting. Mature Christians and new converts together in the prayer meeting. The apostles and common people, unknown people, 120 of them in total, they were there. Different kinds of people. Matthew was there. He used to work for the Roman government. Simon the Zealot was there. He used to work against the Roman government. He belonged to that commando group that tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. Very diverse backgrounds. But they're all united in prayer. What unites God's people? It's the spirit of prayer. When a church gathers to pray, it produces a unity because Jesus Christ becomes the centre of the fellowship. Not the pastor, not the church program, not the church budget, not the church buildings, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis and the centre of such united fellowship. Verse 14 says, these all continued with one accord in prayer. You find that phrase with one accord. It's a wonderful statement of unity. You find it six times in the book of Acts. 
Here we read that they were with one accord in supplication. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were united in their anticipation, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you look down at Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, And they were... And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking of bread from house to house. And they did eat their bread with gladness and singleness of heart. Here we see the church is in one accord in its continuation. They continued daily in one accord. They continued daily serving the Lord. Okay? There was one accord in their supplication, which led to one accord in their anticipation, which led to one accord in their continuation. There were no dropouts in the early church. Chapter 4, verse 24, we see the local church in prayer again. It says, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And they said, Lord, thou art God. They're together, a church, one accord in their adoration. Worshipping and exalting and praising the Lord together in prayer. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We read that by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. They were of one accord in their association. Gathered together, there were no divisions, no schisms, no factions. And then sixthly, Acts chapter 15, verse 25, there's another reference to them being of one accord Seem good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They were in one accord united in their decision making and in their determination. They determined, they made a decision, determined to send out messengers to share with the churches the results of the Jerusalem conference, which was good news for the churches. A great blessing. But it all began when the church was of one accord, united in prayer, one accord in supplication, leading one to one accord in their anticipation, one accord in their continuation, one accord in their adoration, one accord in their association, one accord in their decision making and their determination, united determination to advance the cause of Christ. Acts chapter 19 verse 20 says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. No wonder the local church needs to gather together to pray. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, you need to be active in the life of the church because that's where every Christian belongs. And you need to be actively involved in the prayer ministry of the local church because that's what every church does. Now, your health or your schedule may not permit you to attend every prayer meeting of the church. But you ought to be praying daily for the work of God and praying regularly with the people of God for the work of God. Church members must gather together to pray together. If a person is truly born again, Prayer is as natural as breathing, for the life of the Christian begins with prayer. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Christian life begins with prayer. 
And the life of the Christian matures through prayer. It's impossible for anyone to be an effective, maturing Christian apart from a consistent prayer life. God speaks to us through his word. We speak to God through prayer. If there's no prayer, there's no relationship continuing. And this is why the New Testament puts a strong emphasis on the prayer life of new converts and the prayer teaching of new converts. When people trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were immediately introduced to the church fellowship of prayer. Look again at chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. Verse 41, then they that gladly received his words were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Here we're told that the believers who were converted at Pentecost were introduced to the corporate prayer life of the church. Now, I want us to consider two examples of new converts and their prayer life. Here's the first example right here before us. Those who were saved on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached the word of God. The unsaved people heard it. And verse 37 cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter told them, you've got to call upon the name of the Lord. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did this. Verse 41 tells they received his word. They were baptized. Then verse 42, they were introduced to the fellowship of the local church in the new testament there's no such thing as isolated christians people who were who, who, who came to trust in the lord were immediately introduced to the fellowship of a church and became part of it they were baptized they continued that's the best kind of christians those who continue they continued steadfastly not just intermittent enthusiasm, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. All new Christians need the word of God. The word of God is their food. The word of God is their light. The word of God is a sword in their hand to fight the devil. The word of God is like water that keeps us cleansing from sin. They were taught the apostles' doctrine. They participated in the apostles' fellowship. Notice verse 42 climaxes with prayer. They're introduced to the importance of prayer. When a person is born again, when the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in that person's life, prayer automatically at that moment becomes a vital part of their new life. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry something within us, cries out, Abba, Father. Similar verse, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth his spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, when a person is born again, instinctively, because of the spirit of God within us, there's this desire to speak to God, our Father, since we are his, now his child. Christian life begins with prayer. And it grows with prayer. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is the autograph of the Holy Ghost upon the renewed heart. Why must new Christians then be educated and taught on how to pray? 
Well, for one thing, when a person is saved, initially, for many people, there is this initial exhilaration and enthusiasm, this wonderful feeling of freedom and relief and release. And some Christians are prone to live on and off that feeling. The trouble is that very soon the devil shows up and creates all kinds of problems. There's trials and temptations. And a Christian that just lives on those initial feelings ultimately will fail the Lord. But if he learns how to pray, he will grow in the Lord. You see, prayer teaches us to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It's an evidence that we know our Father in heaven. It's a declaration of our dependency. It's a declaration of our weakness. It's, it's an acknowledgement of our neediness. Prayer gives evidence that we're trusting the Father. We know that he's able. When a new Christian learns how to pray, it helps set the orientation of his life, helps set the priorities of his life thereafter, puts first things first. And the best way for a new Christian to learn how to pray is to be part of a prayer group or prayer meeting. Listen and learn from others. The second example of the prayer life of a new believer is found in Acts chapter 9. I just want you to turn over, please, with me to Acts chapter 9. Here we have the record of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle Paul. And here we read that God spoke to Ananias about going to baptize Paul. And Ananias wasn't sure that he wanted to do that. Acts chapter 9 verse 10. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. God had then went on to uh, said to Ananias that Paul had received a vision which, in which he saw Ananias coming to him and ministering to Paul. But the important thing to note about Paul is that he was praying. Verse 11, behold, he prayeth. This was the thing that reassured Ananias that approaching this man with this ministry, it's, it's okay, it's safe. He's, he's praying. And what a change that was in Paul. He'd been an aggressive leader. Now he's a very humble follower. He'd been a threat to the church, but now he's very meek, he's very weak, he's dependent, he's needy, he's calling out to God, he's fasting, he's praying. I wonder what Paul was praying about. Perhaps he was praying from the Psalms. He knew the Psalms, he knew the Old Testament very, very well. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 50 verse 15. Perhaps he was praying Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, let my ears be attentive, let thy ears be attentive to my supplications. No doubt many times Paul went to the temple to pray as a Pharisee. But now he realized that his Pharisaical righteousness was of no avail. I wonder if you're thinking about Manasseh back in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 33, and when he, Manasseh, was in affliction, he besought the Lord. Besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and was entreated by him. And 
The Lord heard his supplication. Paul was a humbled man, praying to God, and he continued in this life of prayer. In the book of Acts and in the epistles, there are more than 55 references to the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. He was born again in the atmosphere of prayer. Who art thou, Lord? What do you want me to do? And he continued that emphasis. When he's in prison at Philippi, what's he doing? He's praying. He's praising God. You read his letters. He's teaching about prayer. As a matter of fact, in some of his letters, he asked people to pray for him. He asked churches to pray for him. The Apostle Paul began his Christian life in the atmosphere of prayer. Behold, he prayeth. As though God's saying to Ananias, look, you don't have to be afraid of Paul anymore. He's in the place of prayer. He's discovered his own righteousness as filthy rags. He's learned his, old, his own righteousness is meaningless. I've humbled him. I've brought him low. He's become a new creature. Behold, he's praying. The evidence of our salvation. Behold, we pray. What are we saying? Simply this. One of the evidences that a person is truly born again is the desire to pray. When the Holy Spirit comes into a person's heart, the, the new creature will want to pray. It's like breathing. Prayer is life. It's power. When we pray, we're in touch with the throne of grace. We're saved by grace. We grow by grace. We serve by grace. There is nothing of God's will for our lives that can't be accomplished in the life of the Christian who is praying. This is the way God's will is done on earth, in us and through us. Something happens when a church prays. Especially when a church helps new converts to learn to pray. Because as we pray and as they pray, new Christians mature in the Lord and become servants of God who reproduce after their kind. And may the Lord teach us to pray and help others to pray to the glory of God. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we don't have to go too far before we learn about prayer and problems. Turn over please to the chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. If you knew that you, would be, you were scheduled to be executed the next morning, would you sleep the night before? Well, Peter did. Acts 12 records that Peter slept very soundly, even though he was guarded by 16 soldiers and was under the sentence of death to be executed the next morning. And yet he's sleeping. How is that possible? Prayer. Prayer can overcome great problems. Prayer can open prison doors. Prayer can set people free. Prayer can produce peace. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and de delivered him to four quatorians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison. 
And if the story stopped at that point, then Luke would probably have no reason to record this. But notice the next two words, verse 5. But prayer. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing by the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord came upon him, and the light shone in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. And if you uh, recall the story, the angel led Peter out of the prison cell. The doors opened automatically. The guards didn't stop them. Come down to verse 12. And when he considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, the maid came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. And she constantly affirmed that it was even so. And they said, It is his angel. Peter continued knocking. When they had opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. God answered their prayers in a remarkable way. Chapter 12 here, where we see a number of problems. We see actually what we see is a number of powers at work. First, we see the power of Satan at work here. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. The devil always fights against the church when the church is on the move. Spurgeon used to say that Satan never kicks a dead horse. Satan knew that the church was on the move and so he attacked it. Acts chapter 2, we read that 3,000 people were converted to Christ. Later on, another 2,000 were added to that number. 5,000 people were saying, what happened? Church is on the move. According to Acts chapter 4, Satan came like a roaring lion and the apostles were threatened. In chapter 5, he comes like a serpent, influencing Ananias and Sapphira to infect the church with lying and hypocrisy. You see, if Satan can't persecute from the outside, he will pollute from the inside. Then Satan comes as the accuser in chapter 6. A group of widows accuse the other group of widows of taking over. You're getting all the attention. We're being neglected. Satan likes to get the saints to accuse one another. Then according to Acts chapter 12, Satan comes as a murderer. James is killed. And Peter is kept in prison, waiting execution. Never underestimate the power of Satan. The devil uses people. But if we fight against people, we're wasting our time. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Satan used Herod. And today Satan used all kinds of people to attack the work of the church. No wonder Peter wrote, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And the church that doesn't pray is already in Satan's hand. Church is not alert, not watching, not guarding, not pleading. 
is already in the hands of Satan. We must be alert. We must be aware. Jesus said, watch and pray. How does God defeat the power of the devil? Through the power of a praying church. Why did Satan attack James and Peter? Because they were getting in his way. They were winning souls. They were spirit-filled men who were serving God. They were leaders who had influence. Do you pray for the church leaders? Departmental leaders, do you pray for those who have influence? You might not always agree with them, but do you pray for them? Satan is out to destroy those who are in places of spiritual leadership. But God's power is released when God's church prays. The power of Satan was released through Herod's hands. But when a church gathers to pray, God's hands go to work. Remember how the believers prayed back in Acts chapter 4? To do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. The apostles were not saying, what on earth is happening? They were saying, Lord, you're in control of everything. Lord, the time has come for you and your hand to work, please. It's interesting to compare Acts chapter 4, verse 30 and Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. Acts 4 verse 30, we read that God stretched forth his hand to do wonderful works. Question, when does God's hand work? Answer, when God's church prays. Prayer is what moves the hands of God. Sometimes you pick up on the grapevine, there's certain murmurs and complaining, nothing's happening, God is not working. God's hands work when the church prays. Let's have a look at this prayer meeting here. Gathers together in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Verse, verse 5 says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. The word translated without ceasing, one word in Greek means strenuously. Same word translated earnestly. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, same word. In other words, this group of people were not sitting around a table eating, which is a good thing to do sometimes. What they were doing here, this is a prayer meeting. They're not casually talking, they're earnestly praying. Notice that many of them had gathered. Verse 12 where many were gathered together praying. They were united. They were praying together. They were praying without ceasing. They were praying specifically for Peter. God in his sovereign will had permitted James to be slain. Now they're interceding for Peter. Prayer must always be connected with the sovereign will of God. Prayer is not telling God what he ought to do. Prayer is us understanding what the will of God is and praying and pleading that God would do it. Their praying was specific. They prayed for Peter. Their praying was persistent. I get the impression that they were praying all night. 
You don't find many all-night prayer meetings these days. Here are people who gathered together to pray in a united, fervent, specific, persistent way. And yet their prayers were mingled with doubt. They were absolutely astonished about the answer. They couldn't, they couldn't believe it. They didn't believe it. The weapons of the church's warfare are not physical. We don't use physical weapons to fight spiritual battles. The church here didn't arm themselves physically to you know, launch a, some sort of a attack to rescue Peter. They didn't try to influence the Sanhedrin. They didn't try to bribe Herod. They didn't hold a public demonstration protesting in the streets. They were on their knees praying. And the hand of God, in answer to the church's prayer, the hand of God moved and took care of Peter and took care of Herod. The close of Acts chapter 12, the hand of God moved and used some little worms to kill a king who thought he was so great. The greatest power in the world is the power of prayers that move the hands of God. And yet it's not easy to get people together to pray today. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual. God didn't have to blow up the prison to get Peter out. He simply sent an angel down. Not an army, just one. Thomas Watson said the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was, the pr it was prayer that fetched the angel. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that the angels are... Servants of God, servants for us. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister? That is to do service to us who are the heirs of salvation. As God's church, we have the angelic hosts there at God's disposal to help us in answer to our prayers. But the trouble is we, we don't pray I don't know what particular prison type problems that you might have or that your ministry might be enduring or perhaps some of our missionaries are going through difficulties. Maybe they're having problems with the authorities. But we can be sure of this. God answers prayer. No matter what the situation is, doesn't matter how locked and barred the doors are, doesn't matter how strong and numerous the guards are, God is able to deliver. No matter how great the power of Satan is in the world today, we still have the power of God. And people can be delivered. Many wonderful things can happen when the church learns to pray. you part of the prayer ministry of this church, your, your church. you part of the prayer ministry of your church. There's opportunity, there's a group that will meet online tomorrow night, as, we, as it does every Monday night, to share together, to pray together, pray for one another. There's an opportunity there. Tuesday nights provides opportunity for the ladies exclusively, goes through a bit of a cycle through the ladies' ministries there. Opportunity for ladies 
to join together to pray. Wednesday nights, we're here every Wednesday night down the back. On site and online. If you can't be here on site, if you can get to a computer, you can be part of a prayer group that prays together. There's nothing sacred about Wednesday night as a prayer time. But there's certainly something sacred about the corporate prayer of believers that we all need to be part of. Saturday, 12th of August, is a half night of prayer. Our weekends usually provide us with a bit more flexibility in our schedule. There's a half night of prayer. Don't have to come the, the whole half of the night. But across four hours, there's opportunity for you to come on site anytime in the first two hours or to jump online the last two hours, any part thereof. Plenty of opportunities for you to be part of the prayer ministry of this church. Travelled with uh, G.S. Nair and Timothy for a week. Um, you learn a lot about people when you sit in the car for so many hours. Spend a lot of time with them. Um, I can tell you that Pastor Nair is a man of prayer. I can tell you that. But I also learned that uh, one of the reasons why the ministry in India is uh, multiplying in such a remarkable way is that 24 hours a day, around the clock, there's people praying. 24 hours a day, around the clock, people praying. Um, who's going to do the, the 1 a.m. shift? Well, someone does the 1 a.m. shift and then they get on the phone at 2 o'clock and says, I'm done, are you awake? And that person says, yep, I'm good to go. And so that person takes the 2 to 3 shift and rings up someone at 3 o'clock and the way it goes continues. Probably not the same people all the time. But consistently... I don't know for how long. I didn't ask them how long they've been doing this. But around the clock, 24 hours a day, across the ministry, there are people praying because uh, this is what God has called us to do. And this is the way that God's work goes forward. And this is one of the characteristics of a, of a healthy church. And uh, you're part of that issue as an individual, you're part of that issue. You can pray as an, a Christian individual at any time, any place. But you as a Christian individual are not the church. You are not a church. Church is people who gather together. That's what a church is. It's when people gather together. And in the, in the New Testament, the pattern for New Testament churches is that churches will gather together somewhere, sometime, somehow, some way to pray. And I hope and pray that we do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, uh, the, the word of God that is before us. It's all scripture is given by inspiration. It's all profitable for us, whether it be for our doctrine, for our reproof or our correction or our instruction in righteousness. Uh, there's profit for all of us here, wherever we are. In those four categories, whatever we need this morning as a church, whatever we need this morning, thank you that the word of God provides it and uh, will equip us to do everything that you've called us to do. And uh, Lord, on this matter of praying, 
Lord, perhaps it's not just a matter of our minds because uh, we think all of us know enough to know that prayer is a priority for us as a church. Perhaps it's not so much a matter of knowing, but it's certainly a matter of doing. It's a matter of our will. And uh, Lord, I do pray that uh, we would be humble uh, before you and acknowledge our neediness and our great dependency upon you. Uh, Lord, it's a privilege to pray. It's hard work. It's inconvenient. It's a sacrifice. There's other things to do, many things to do. But help us, Lord, not to neglect this one needful thing. We pray that you'd help us with this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.